Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The following podcast contains explicit language. Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Get a Load of This Clown edition. It's Wednesday, September 28th, 2016. On today's show, what started as a fringe festival monologue is now a six-parter on Amazon. Fleabag is a witheringly cynical and funny look at a young London woman's life in disarray, sexual and otherwise. And then, like the sun burning out, we knew it would come, but lived in denial of the inevitable. It's an extinction-level event, the end of the biggest, glitziest, most celebrityist celebrity couple it's here. Brangelina is no more. Hold me up. Fan me. I don't know if I'm going to make it. I'm really upset. <laughs> Steve's looking very peaked. Very. This is bad. Um, and finally, until recently, Addie Walker was the lone black American girl doll. We discussed the story behind Addie's creation and what she meant to young girls of color forced ambivalently to make do with her. We discussed this with Slate's own Aisha Harris. Joining me today is Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Wow, I got introduced first. Does this indicate an uptick in your affection? I guess I was cavelling over the performance of uh, Civilization in the person of Hillary Clinton last night. Um, And thus. (laughs) Thus somehow I ascended in the ranks. I don't know. She is wearing a red. You are wearing red. (laughs) Shall I do a shoulder shimmy? Yes, do it. Oh, your shimmy is really good. Oh, dear. Um, but don't smile too much or be overprepared. And, um, and of course, Julia Turner is Slate's uh, editor. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. We're all here in one room. It's so delightful. I know. It's, it's so embodied. It's nice. Yes. Corporeal. Uh, surely we have business, Julia. Numero uno. We are coming to Los Angeles. We will be there Thursday, October 13th at the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. Our show is on the verge of selling out. So get your tickets now. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll get a discounted ticket. Uh, And we will be talking amongst ourselves and also to Karina Longworth, the 
absolutely knockout wonderful hostess of the great podcast, You Must Remember This, which I think we have all independently endorsed at this point. You can get tickets now at slate.com slash live. And we're very excited to see you there. If we sell it out, I I think Steve and Dana are going to sing something. Never said that. (laughs) Never said that. Not doing music. If only there was some way to like verify what had been said before on the show, like some kind of, yeah. Anyway, number two, we have so many enticements for Slate Plus members and potential Slate Plus members today. On the Slate Plus segment of our show, which is only available if you are a member, we have gone back into the archives in celebration of Slate's 20th anniversary to find our favorite moments from eight years of producing the Slate Culture Gab Fest. We've reminisced about the dawn, the high points, the low points, and uh, shared them all for you. So you can get that at the end of our show if you are a member. Also, our fellow longtime Slate podcasts, The Politics Gab Fest, Hang Up and Listen, and Double X have done similar segments. And we are dropping this week a special compendium, The History of Slate Podcasts, Reminiscences, Highlights, Jokes, Banter, and More. That's also available on the Slate Plus podcast feed this week. And also, in honor of Slate's 20th anniversary, we are offering a discount. You can now get an annual membership to Slate Plus for 30% off for a mere $35. That is a very, very good deal for a limited time only. So go to slate.com slash culture plus for discounted membership, access to that reminiscence segment to our plus segment today and to the plus segments we do every week. All right. I think now we can commence. All right. Thanks, Julia. Fleabag, I think I misspoke in the introduction, actually started as a kind of a dare, a 10-minute monologue. Um, then it expanded and enjoyed its first prominence at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Now it is a six-part series on Amazon. It stars, as it always had, its author, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. She plays, in her own words, a massively broken woman whose need for sexual affirmation leads her into misadventure, but also as we discover tragedy. The show is witheringly funny, I think, cynical, frank, and finely drawn. Um, Why don't we listen to a clip? You know that feeling when a guy you like sends you a text at two o'clock on a Tuesday night asking if he can come and find you, and you've accidentally made it out like you've just got in yourself, so you have to get out of bed, drink half a bottle of wine, get in the shower, shave everything, dig out some agent provocateur business, suspend about the whole bit, and wait by the door until the buzzer goes. You open the door to him like you've almost forgotten he's coming over. Oh, hi. Hey. And then you get to it immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Dana, what we hear from that clip is something you know very distinctive about the show throughout, which she breaks the wall, a uh, fourth wall all the time, addresses the audience directly, creates a kind of complicity with the viewer. Um, it also sends some of the tone, which is rollicking and a little cruel maybe socially cruel and at first i wondered whether i would be able to overcome what seemed to be its studied callousness i did completely but i didn't stop wondering whether you would be able to it struck me as something you might not like hmm i wonder what made you think that i uh the, the my least favorite element of fleabag is what we just heard in that little monologue which is when i think the if not the opening one mm-hmm. of the earliest yeah, I ones think it might be the opening of the whole show yeah. and it has to do with direct address, I started to realize over the course of watching four of the six episodes that exist of this show so far that I don't really like direct address to the camera and it's very, very hard to pull off. Um, I mean, I should probably start off by saying the things I do like about this show. I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who's, as you say, her personality animates it entirely, right? She's the creator, she's the writer, and she's the main character, is is very strong. She's extremely charismatic and a powerhouse and able to 
do these shifts where she'll address the camera in the second person as we hear her, hear her do and then immediately go into the drama sort of um, with no seam in between. So to the extent that anyone could pull it off, she can pull it off. But I just think that direct address, especially when it's overused, as I think it was, for example, in House of Cards, the series House of Cards, can become too cute and muggy and too sort of coyly self-conscious. And, and that did bother me about this mm-hmm. this show. Um there's you can tell this came from a one woman show in a way. I saw it before having read the background about it having been a one woman show at the Edinburgh Theater Festival, but you can really see that in how centered it is on this character who's called only Fleabag, which I think mm-hmm. is pretty funny. Apparently that is her actually her family nickname in real life, if you Waller Bridge. Her parents call her Fleabag, which is sort of endearingly awful. But that character is, is strong, but the rest of the characters all seem like mere foils for mm-hmm. her to me. And, th- and in that sense, I think they, those were characters that she herself would voice, right? If it was a one-woman show, she'd be, she'd sort of be popping out of character to be her own god godmother, her own sister. These people who are fleshed out mm-hmm. other humans in the right. in the show, and that makes them feel not completely fleshed out to me. Although the actress who plays her sister is fantastic, very good, yeah. All of the characters seemed to be, you know, revolving around this woman who, of course, the premise of the show is that she's a narcissist. But I think that the show felt a little bit cloyingly Mm -hmm. over-centered on her. Right. Did you get get that at all, Julia? Intellectually, I recognize that everything you say is true. And yet I loved this. And I spent my watching of it trying to figure out why it felt so startlingly original while relying on an incredibly hackneyed technique like Kevin Spacey in House of Cards, Jim Halpert in The Office, like – the the notion, the kind of mockumentary notion of like, I'm going to raise an eyebrow at the camera and be like, what about get a load of these clowns? Which she really does. I mean, she's constantly, constantly she does it. lifting her eyebrows and rolling her eyes and sort of cutely responding to everything everyone does. And to me, it took me out of the drama. So I did not find that. I It's the exact kind of thing that I would expect to to, to not like. I mean, we even we, you know, Slate published a video this morning, one of our like 40,000 pieces about the debate uh, in which we noted that Hillary was essentially doing the Jim Halpert face to the camera at a couple points when Trump was going off, like with all of her incredible poison training for that debate. There were a couple moments where she was just like looking straight to the audience at home and just not quite shaking her head, but just with her eyes signaling like, can you believe that get a load of this clown, right? (laughs) The, The like get a load of this clown deadpan acting is just super tired. And yet I think because of the completeness and energy and vim and originality of this character's worldview, which again, in and of itself shouldn't feel that original, right? The the lady who's a hot mess also becoming kind of hackneyed, right? We've got um, the Gretchen character on You're the Worst, um, the Gillian Jacobs character in Love, that show we watch, which is basically the same show as You're the Worst, the Amy Schumer character in Trainwreck, Lena Dunham in Girls, the sort of sex-obsessed charismatic narcissist woman, also familiar and hackneyed at this point. And yet maybe I'm guilty of succumbing to the charms of just like doing it all in a British accent. But I really think the particularity of Phoebe Waller-Bridge's worldview seemed distinct to me in a couple ways. One, I think, is that her face as an instrument is amazing like it's just an incredible face like the the number of different expressions that she's making it's not just the the jim halpert like blank emoji deadpan just like again and again and again there are sort of these like lightning little twitches of the eyebrow and trinkles of the nose like there's you know the 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 physicality of her face as an instrument of expression is really remarkable and special i think um and then the particular kind of sexualized self-loathing slash self-actualization around grief 
I mean, the the plot of the show is that she's mourning a death. And I think I won't say whose because the way it lands and the way it's set up is surprising and I think interesting. But she's mourning a kind of death of a kind of relationship that I actually haven't seen a show that that uh, explores that quite well. Um, and I think the depiction of a particular kind of loneliness actually felt unusual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I I would group it with a different genre, which is the um, work of fiction that reveals itself over time to be a kind of grief memoir, even though you expected it was something else. So, you know, like Catcher in the Rye, you know, is about Holden Caulfield mourning the loss of his brother, uh, younger brother. And um, Bright Lights, Big City is really a grief memoir about the McInerney's uh, narrator's mother, loss of his mother. Uh, the Frank Baskin books by Richard Ford, The Loss of a Child. Um, they're not remembered for this. Lolita being, to me, the greatest example of it being covert. You actually find out in the introduction of Lolita that she's died and it's completely shattered him. And most readers miss this. But that book is kind of its own hidden grief memoir. I thought this was absolutely a part of that genre, not the Amy Schumer, Lena Dunham nexus. And it totally rescued him. The grief at the center of this otherwise you know, intensively callous kind of cynical uh, show is what gave it a a center and made it uh, land quite powerfully. In addition to all of the other like little quiddities that you can't really put a precise finger on, like the incredible beauty and motility of her face, the, um, the wit of some of the writing, the sharpness of some of the social observations, the power struggle with the um, stepmother is unbelievably well, I think, fleshed out uh, so that you realize over time that this person's an utter monster who really hates her and is in kind of a you know semi-edible competition with her over the father. Uh, the hints at how the father was an inadequate father. And there's this humane dimension that rescues what I at first thought was going to make me dislike the show, which is in turning to the camera, it's not just the cutesiness of the device uh, and how familiar we are with it from other shows. It's also the implication that the person she's talking to in the scene is annoying, dorky, a loser, and being played by her. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to hate this woman because I'd be the person that she was annoyed by, right? Like I, And, and it, in fact, she structured the original monologue that way, that over the course of the 10 minutes, you were supposed to laugh with her and you were supposed to become increasingly less comfortable with your laughter until you saw this person is massively wounded, um, and over, especially, and, and interestingly, without giving anything away, in the course of the show, you realize she was massively wounded before the grief-inducing event. And in fact, it's the wound that leads to the grief that then intensifies the wound. And she's caught in this vicious cycle, but it's about her coming to terms with the fact that she fucked up and fucked up in this really characteristic way and is now dealing with the aftermath of it by um, repeating the pathology that destroyed, that that brought about the event that kind of semi-destroyed her life. And that to me just seems so psychologically acute, in addition to which it's as funny as catastrophe and charming as catastrophe. You just want to be around Phoebe Waller-Bridge. So all those things together, I thought it was brilliant. I watched the whole thing in a six-episode blur. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of a, the, the question that I'll be watching for as I watch the rest of the series is how aware is the show of the... You know, inherently in the way that the other characters are sketched, they are thin. Part of it is the writing and part of it is also that because she's cutting so often to the camera, the scenes that she's playing in 
read almost as like dioramas. Like the the actually the acting challenge. I would love to read an interview with all the mm-hmm. other people on the show. Yeah. Like what like they sort of have to just pause there while she cuts away. I also think one thing that makes the cutting away really distinctive um, is how frequent it is. It's it's sort of like intercut through every single scene, and it's not you know the famously I think the pilot of Sex and the City. Um, include Sarah Jessica Parker just like turning to the camera and being like, get a load of this clown. Um, and uh, and they then, I think, submerge that into the like column writing question asking rubric for her voiceover. Which was the worst part of that show. But it was better than what they did in the pilot um, in, in terms of like how it fit in. Um, so the aggressiveness of it feels fresh as well as opposing as opposed to it being this occasional counterpoint. It's like a big chunk of almost every scene mm-hmm. is her doing that, which which inherently turns the other characters into mannequins. And I'm not yet certain whether the show, the broader worldview of the show, will turn out to give those characters sympathy by buying into their view of of the main character, of Fleabag herself, or whether actually the whole show is a like monstrous act of, mm-hmm. of yeah. narcissism. No, it's true. Specifically on that point, there are three men that she's involved with, uh, uh, you know, in somewhat longer term in the course of the show and they're each of them is a twit in their own way and kind of a type one is a hopeless narcissist one is a emotionally fragile twit and one is an painfully awkward over explainer you know goof it did seem as though had you reversed genders there the charge of sexism would be you know quite you know easy to levy but that did point to the idea that that the only truly real character in some sense is the, the monologuist at the center of at the center of it. I mean, you talk about identifying with the with the people that that, sh- that would be on her bad side, right? That that you were afraid that that would that would happen over the course of watching, and then it didn't to you. But one of those three boyfriends that you just mentioned, the one you characterized as an emotional wimp, there's something that she does to him, a prank she pulls on him in the second episode. Mm-hmm. I think you both know what I'm talking about. Yeah. That is vile. It is a horrible, cruel act. And then the boyfriend bursts into tears and is completely terrified. And uh, and and I guess we're <laughs> supposed to be laughing at him, but that moment made me really uncomfortable, and it made me made it really hard to get back on board with her but it's also incredibly funny because as he's almost having a heart attack he keeps apologizing to her for his reaction as if it's an overreaction but it isn't i mean it's just the show the show has a cruel streak it's just part of her sensibility and her wit like and it's the it's just the dangerous substance at the heart of it is is that woman right i mean that's why it's so magnetic if she weren't so freaking lethal i mean she's hateful and the most charming person you've ever been around, right? And you're going to get stilettoed a dozen times and hang out with her, but you couldn't possibly refuse. I would rather hang out with other TV characters than that woman. Yeah. But I but I, I, do, I, I, do agree that Phoebe Waller-Bridge is an impressive creator of, of stuff. And I would be interested to see anything else she does. All right. Well, the show is Fleabag. It's uh, streaming on Amazon. There are six of them. Uh, binge them. Come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest and tell us what you, what you thought of them. We're... Interestingly, I think a little bit on the fence, tilting towards very pro. All right, moving on. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
The couple known by the portmanteau, Brangelina, is no more. Angelina Jolie has filed for divorce from Brad Pitt. Um, In one sense, I suppose, though, this is only just the beginning. Now comes the sloppy aftermath, the accusations, leaks, the schadenfreude. I know, Dana, you'll be indulging in much Brangelina schadenfreude. I can see it on your face already. No doubt these will be magnified a thousandfold to honor the magnitude of this, the biggest celebrity couple of our lifetime. Julia, um, let me begin with you. Um, You know, I had to seek out external authority to have any opinion about this whatsoever. So I read in The Guardian that they are the most perfect celebrity couple of all time. And this should be the basis of my caring about them. Um, What's your estimation? Bigger than Richard and Liz? I'm not sure how The Guardian defines perfect there. I think the wattage of this couple is extremely high. And then the life choices they've made are distinctive and interesting. And as a result, there is a lot of interest in their coupling and their decoupling. They're both like just straight up pure Colombian A-list. Like if you were like cast someone in your movie, you know, five or eight years ago, you absolutely would have picked him and her as the, the highest voltage celebrity out there. They're also not just like empty Kardashian-ish celebrities. I mean, you can sort of think what you will about Angelina's acting and directing, but as a sheer, like, charismatic force, she can hold the screen, I think. Um, <laughs> and I think Pitt is a, is a really sensitive and interesting actor and has done a lot of interesting work with with fascinating directors. And then the nature of the origin of their relationship is was mesmerizing and compelling. Brad Pitt was already in a very A-list couple with Jennifer Aniston, who seemed like, you know, a pretty A-list celebrity at the time, and then made a pretty great, I think, movie, Mr. and Mrs. Smith with Angelina Jolie, where you get to sort of watch them falling in love on screen. And then you liked that movie. It's so fun. I have to go back and rewatch it now, now that they are no more. But I I always thought that for these people, you know, this incredibly hot couple that were supposed to be falling in love on the set, that that movie had no chemistry at all and kind of flopped around like a dead fish. I... Wait, they don't flop. <laughs> <laughs> dying About fish, to be dead. Dying fish. But anyway, so the drama of the beginning of their relationship of like, well, he ditched one A minus lister for an A plus lister. Um, and then, you know, in addition to the to Maddox, whom Angelina Jolie had adopted, they adopted several more kids and they had several kids of their own. Then they were together for 10 years as she became a, you know, UN ambassador and or goodwill ambassador and director and um, his career took interesting turns, but they pretty much retained their centrality in the constellation of megastars. Uh, so I don't know if they're the perfect celebrity couple, but they are the the biggest, the most mm-hmm. important, the most significant, the 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 one who seemed to be living life on a large uh, look at me canvas. Uh, which seems like it comes with all kinds of trouble and constraint as well. Uh, But I think that's why the interest was so huge. Mm -hmm. Julie, it seems to me what was most interesting about the the Guardian argument about their perfection as a celebrity couple is that their celebrity as a couple coincided with a certain moment in the history of gossip in relation to the internet. So gossip maybe used to be a power broker, inside dopester, power broker like Hedda Hopper, Walter Winchell, trading in blind items and tittle-tattle. You know, the rise of the internet meant a different relationship to gossip. It was very often free associative wisecracking in the face of a photograph, a candid photograph snapped by a paparazzo. It was highly speculative, very driven by social media. 
Anything to this thesis? It's interesting because in some ways that sounds like an argument that Brad and Angelina were the celebrity couple of our celebrity coverage moment. But I actually think that's not true. Like part of why they seem so iconic and why the split seems set like such a big deal, uh, in addition to the the serious human element of the allegations about Brad Pitt and his potential behavior towards their children, is that they actually seem like a celebrity couple out of time. You know, they seem like the Elizabeth Taylor uh, and Richard Burton of the, of the day, less in terms of their tempestuous back and forth and coupling and uncouplings. You actually didn't hear, uh, I think, a ton of implication that their their love was riven by violent emotion uh, throughout. They actually seemed pretty serene in their union until recently. Um, and the coverage, but just the wattage of it, the globetrottingness of it, the kind of band of children, uh, the goodwill efforts around like rebuilding New Orleans after Katrina and traveling with the UN and um, seeming to care broadly about people other than themselves in, you know, lots of celebrities are associated with um, charity work and goodwill work and other directed work, but they seemed pretty focused on that in a way that actually is kind of different than what the celebrity economy of the last 10 years has focused on, which is a lot more the actual economy of having your agent tell the paparazzo that you're going to the Starbucks on Wilshire and, uh, you know, you can you, you'll be able to snap a photograph of me and, you know, carrying out three lattes for the stars just like us page. And I just happened to be wearing the new outfit from the place. And who knows what kind of transaction happened there? Maybe I got it for free. But the, the kind of performed ordinariness of celebrities, you know, there, there was sort of a a bringing the stars down to earthness of celebrity coverage in the last um, 10 years that presents the drama of celebrities' own lives as just like what we're all going through. And the otherness of Brad and Angelina's lifestyle actually to me seems like the most distinctive thing about their celebrity self. Yeah, I agree, Julie. There's kind of an exotic glamour to them as a couple that does seem to to bring back an old Hollywood kind of feel, even though there's no question that they are cannily manipulating their own public images and uh, even even in such a way as to make it seem that they're not. I do think, though, that I have I have some sympathy for them. I mean, I would say as an emotional response to this. I don't I'm not emotionally moved or troubled by this. Like I had no investment in their union as a matter of romance in the way that I like actually did the revelations about about Jay-Z cheating on Beyonce and Lemonade, like just the directness of them and the candor of them and the surprise of the way they were delivered and the panache of the way they were delivered were all part of the impact. But part of it is that like, I like the idea that Beyonce and Jay-Z are in love, like sap that that may make me like a chump of the celebrity culture that that may make me. I feel invested in their romance in that like, these two incredible performers are this like power duo and they admire each other's work and they're, and they're in love. Like I, I like the idea that they're crazy in love and was sad that their union is more troubled than I had believed it to be like genuinely personally sad, I'm not proud of it, but it's true. Like if I ever found out there are other celebrity couples that I'm invested in. Their well, Naomi union. Watts and Leah Schreiber just broke up and the news was barely, barely Registered. paid attention to. But right. I find that to be like much more destabilizing because they just seem kind of like mm-hmm. two smart, sane, interesting people um, who are making it work 
in a more like normal, same level way. And that made me sad. Like if I ever found out that, that Barack Obama and Michelle's marriage oh, was troubled, no, I would like me. jump off a cliff. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like I, right. I, it's possible to be personally invested in the romantic union of others. Um, I feel like a little bit that way about um, like Will Arnett and Amy Poehler. Like they, they, that seemed, was a sad breakup. That was a sad for me breakup. Like they're, they're, random couples that I kind of root mm-hmm. for as a matter of romance, which is not sen- not sensible, but is true. And I didn't care. Like, I don't care about these two. They seem so otherworldly mm-hmm. and so up on a pedestal. Right. Like, it didn't move me personally. But as a matter of sympathy, like, I do think it is a weird life. It's a, you know, and it's very unclear what actually happened. There was some kind of incident on their plane that apparently caused their parenting to be reported to child services in Los Angeles, who then referred it to the FBI, I guess, because it occurred like in airspace or something like that. And so there is an actual investigation uh, around their parenting. That's incredibly sad. Um, We don't know the outcome, the messaging around that. These people are both very canny projectors of selfhood. So I think there will be a lot to untangle there as we learn more about the story. But I do think these lives are super weird. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. being that, I mean, not to be poor little rich people, but like to be that, like how to not become a mm-hmm. narcissist jerk with the how? way their lives are constructed seems I to- tough. No, I you totally can't step agree. out of your house. What kind of life is that? Right. It calls to mind these two things that I came across recently. One was um, William Goldman tells the, the screenwriter, he wrote Butch, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And he tells this great story about knowing Robert Redford kind of before. For mega fame and after mega fame, and he he just makes it seem like a a kind of rapturing in a way that a person exits the orbit even of the normally famous when they become mega famous, and how they someone you actually knew quite intimately professionally suddenly becomes a kind of stranger. And the second is these wonderful and vivid descriptions of Tom Cruise pre-fame in this uh, oral history of uh, CAA, the big talent agency, and he's just this tender young kid. And in a matter of two, three, four years, there's suddenly this massive discrepancy between his life experience, which is in some ways kind of attenuated. He bounced from town to town and school to school and the sheer multitude of people projecting upon his image as a movie star. And that it's that discrepancy kind of between, you know, what must be happening on the inside of someone whose experience in some ways may be quite limited and the intensity and multitude of everyone else's experience of them. And then to multiply that on itself by having two such people marry one another, it's a recipe for a kind of insanity on all our parts. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's again, I, I think in some ways Brad and Angelina are pretty good at not pulling the poor, poor me, the celebrity shtick. Like they sort of know better. And I don't think they're, that's been a refrain with them, but and obviously people of all income levels and backgrounds and professions can be assholes to each other and to their children. But the strangeness of their life, the unstructuredness of their life, the, the sort of rovingness of their life just seems hard. And mm-hmm. I, I feel, although not personally invested in their togetherness or apartness, just sad. And I think the way that the story played out at first seeming like this amusing, exciting uh, break from the bleakness of our political, the political story that's been the main story for the last year. Brad and Angie, they finally split. Their glamorous life didn't work anymore. There were rumors that perhaps Brad was dallying with Marion Cotillard, with whom he starred recently in a movie. And Marion Cotillard is pregnant <gasps> with whose child? You know, just sort of like usual celebrity gossip type coverage. 
And all of that played out in our current social media ecosystem so that Marion Cotillard like swiftly debunked this claim with an Instagram post of like cosmic stars saying that she felt sad for all of us in our sad lives and that she's having her baby with her longtime <laughs> love and she wishes Brad and Angelina the best and we should all go screw basically. I think that's what the translation from the French was. <laughs> um, and then, you know, Jennifer Aniston has said nothing, but people are having fun uh, sharing like gifts of her in a cheerleader uniform from some old friends episode being like, hooray, they finally <laughs> split up, which frankly, it seems like Jennifer Aniston has moved well on and has her own shit going on. But the, you know, the lives we project onto these people were this kind of fun pageant for like 12 hours. And then the details of this abuse allegation came out and we don't really yet know exactly what transpired or what that means about their parenting or what it's like for those kids to grow up in that family. But, you know, the thing that seemed like a fun celebrity amuse bouche uh, somewhat heartless but delightful break from the news just be- began to seem like its own sordid awful story mm. all right well on sordid and horrible maybe we'll we'll wrap it there sure <laughs> um all right well brad and angelina they've broken up um if you care about it uh, come to facebook.com tell us what you think about it um, and tell us what celebrities if they broke up would really break your heart that's actually like my favorite i'd and, love to know and, that too. and why like why why does that emotional investment happen yeah. in some instances and not in others yeah Aisha Harris was five years old in 1993 when she received Addie, the uh, African-American um, American girl doll for Christmas. Let me quote from her wonderful piece about the subject. After having obsessed over the American girl catalog for some time, I vividly remember being excited about her drinking gourd and cowrie shell necklace. I also remember her thick textured hair, which felt similar to my own. I had never owned another doll quite like her. And for some time, I would bring her with me everywhere I could. Aisha, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, it's a fantastic essay. It is uh, deeply researched and also uh, personally felt and nuanced throughout. Let me begin. It's, uh, it's it's in a way, in a good way, it's hard to pick where to begin exactly. But why don't we begin by having you discuss a little bit what it meant to get this doll, what it meant for that company to create the doll, and then where your research led you and what you discovered about its creation. Well, yeah. I mean, I grew up in a household where my parents and my dad especially were very adamant about me never owning a white doll <laughs> um, so it was just black dolls and that's it and and because of that I think that when the Addy doll came out that was a perfect opportunity for my parents to get me like a really nice no- doll not just a Barbie doll but these are very well crafted Dolls. They're like big and sturdy for people who never had them. They're like they're eighteen inches. Yeah, they're yeah. not. They're not like a little Barbie type thing. It's sort of like the size of a small puppy or something. Right, and they and they come with these very like nice outfits and accessories. They're very expensive back then. I think in the piece I note that in the, what in the nineties and late eighties they they price tagged around eighty five dollars for a doll, and that's not including all of the accessories and everything. Which, which that goes they all it. just because I've never owned one of the big American Girl dolls, or nor is my daughter. So they all come with historical stories, right? That's that's well, all of the historical yeah, the historical doll line. So I guess we should clarify that there is a difference between the American Girl historical dolls, which were the original dolls that Pleasant Company launched with and created by Pleasant Roland in 1986. And those dolls, there were four of them to begin with, and they each had a different historical period. And they had these stories that went with them. So it wasn't just a doll, and it wasn't just books. It was this, like, 
combination of the two. So these these dolls and these characters had a backstory. And so that's sort of what makes them special in a way and makes them different from, say, a Cabbage Patch doll. Mm-hmm. And so when Addie came along, that was the that was a big deal because, first of all, by then it had been seven years out since Pleasant Company had launched. They hadn't had any black dolls within the American Girl line. And in, and, and in those seven years, it had become a huge phenomenon among young girls, right? American yeah. Girl dolls were becoming ubiquitous among girls of a certain age and to not have an African And a certain class. Right. I think it's it was ubiquitous among a certain class. I can imagine there are a lot of people who did not even know they existed. In fact, I one woman I interviewed uh, who is my age, she grew up in New York in, I think, the Bronx or Harlem, uh, or she went to school in the Bronx. And she remembers being a kid and not knowing didn't even know there were dolls she knew there were books because the books were easily accessible the books are like 9.99 each and so uh, but she didn't know there were dolls until she was like a little bit older so yeah they were they, for a certain age in class they were ubiquitous and and when the black doll Addie came out there's a lot of controversy about the fact that she was a slave she starts off in the stories, Addie Walker starts off as a slave. And by the end of the first book, she's escaped to freedom with her mother. Yeah. One thing that's really terrific, I think, about the amazing reporting you've done in this piece is that this one poor doll has so many hopes and dreams and sort of responsibilities of representation cast upon her that, you know, you kind of start with the notion of, all right, well, what does it mean for this one doll who's representing everything to all black girls everywhere and to all girls of this time and class everywhere to start as a slave and to to bind up this experience of dollhood um, with slavery? You point out that among some of the critiques are like the other girl, like Felicity, the I think she's the pioneer girl. Yeah, she's right? from Colonial Williamsburg. She's oh, yeah. Okay. Tom Kirsten. Kirsten was the pioneer girl. Yes. Um, yeah. That she like. Whatever. One of them wants to, like, learn a horse. That's her plot. And Addie's plot is, like, escaping from bondage. <laughs> and, you know, um, and, and another one's, like, my mom wants – my mom's having a second kid and I'm, like, feeling edged aside. And that the sort of – that in some ways focusing so much on slavery seemed out of balance or seemed um, too on the nose. And, and what you've done here is really go back and uh, interview the people as far as you could get them who were associated with the creation of the doll at the time. Uh, what did you expect to find and what did you find once you uh, talked to all those people? Well, I I didn't expect it to go nearly as deep as it wound up going. Um, I expected to m- interview the author and then maybe interview Pleasant Roland, who at this point in time, she's in her 70s and she's retired and she sold uh Pleasant Company to Mattel in 1998. So she hasn't really had anything to do with the brand and 18 years. That was what I was hoping for and and get like the backstory based on them. And then I learned that there is an entire advisory board involved with this, which I was not aware of. And this might have been somewhat common knowledge, but I had no idea. I'd never really thought about it before. So this advisory board was put together and the Pleasant Company, which the company was known as before Pleasant Roland sold the company to Mattel, and now it's known as American Girl. So when I call it Pleasant Company, that's Pleasant Company was the original name of the Mm -hmm. brand. Pleasant Company, they had had, they always have had outside experts contribute to each of the dolls, regardless of what doll they were. They wanted, they, and that was, but that was usually in like the last stages and the final stages of putting the books together. They have like an in-house historical researcher, and then they'd get like one or two experts to 
<clears throat> fact check and everything and make sure it's all like as legit as possible. But this was the first time with Addie that they had actually like put together a more formalized board of six different historical scholars from and, and experts in African-American history and specifically also on slavery. And they, you know, they were there to help guide the whole process. Now, Pleasant Roland, from what I gathered from all the people I spoke with, she always had the final say and she was very, very involved. And she attended all the meetings and had the last say in every case. But the advisory board was there to give input to advise the author, Connie Porter, and also to help with the doll. They helped with the prototype. They had several different prototypes. They contributed ideas for how she would look, especially the hair, which I talk about in the piece. So they were they were very integral. And I think they also obviously acted as sort of a cover for the Pleasant Company to say, hey, we were really trying. We we're putting this out there. And we're making sure we get outside voices because Pleasant Company was very, very white. It's Midwest, Wisconsin, I think Middleton, Wisconsin. So it wasn't even like Milwaukee. So it was a very, very white place. And and Pleasant Company was a very white place. And, you know, I give them kudos for actually attempting to get outside voices and actually use them from what I from what I understand. And Aisha, you also say that there was controversy and, and continues to be since Addie is still made, right? The, the Addie doll is still available about whether or not it was a good idea to start off with slavery as the historical period and whether whether it was something that, you know, little black girls would want to grow up with sort of having their only fictional counterpart in the American girl doll world be a slave. Can you talk about the company's reasoning behind that and also how you feel about that controversy? Right. It took a lot of digging because the the issue with something like this is that this was all happening 25 plus years ago when they were creating this. So <laughs> I interviewed people who hadn't even thought about this in years. And so there was a lot of haziness as to who decided what and 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 some people couldn't remember and I had to go back and everything. But I was able to get confirmation from the in-house historian um, at Pleasant Company, Polly Athan, who she's a historian, so she had all of her notes. <laughs> and she was able to confirm that the the board was the one who decided, ultimately decided, along with Pleasant Roland, that the time period would be set in slavery or at the towards the end of slavery. And their reasoning was that look, this is where Black American history begins. It begins with slavery. And if we're ever going to get to the other historical points, and and this piece is pegged to Melody and Melody, uh, this new doll that they have is a little Black girl from Detroit in the 1960s during the Civil Rights Movement. So their their reasoning was, if we're going to get to any of those other time periods, we need to start with slavery first. Now, the problem begins when, for 18 years, Addie was the only black doll. So like, I feel like that's where a lot of, obviously there were critiques when it first came out before people even knew that there would be that long of a gestation period before the next one would come. But I think for a lot of people like myself, that that is where the issue lies, is that for so long, there was only Addie. It wasn't like, we started with her and then like a couple years later, oh, we have a new one. It was, no, this <laughs> the only choice you have is a slave doll. So... And since in between Melody, this new Detroit doll has been released, there was another black American girl doll. Who was she? She was Cecile, and she wasn't a slave, and her period was actually in the 1850s New Orleans. So she was, they didn't call her this, but she was essentially a Creole. <laughs> um, and she 
she, and the other caveat is that she is, I think she was the first and might still be the only doll who within the American Girl historical line, she shared a story with another doll. So like their stories were intertwined and they had like each separate books, but they would appear in the other books. They were best friends and the other doll was a, a white doll. And, you know, I, I haven't read them, but um, that was actually discontinued after only three years. So for a three-year period from 2011 to 2014, there were two dolls, two black dolls. But that's still, that was a good, that was 1993, 2001. So that was like a good 18 years before the new doll came out. So um, one, it, it, first of all, the the piece is, has many great components, but one of the things I love in it as someone who knows you is a picture of Aisha holding her Addie doll as a so child. So adorable. And you're one of those people who has the same face your whole life because you have a baby face now. So it was just a great mini Aisha. <laughs> in my in my flannel. <laughs> the 90s were such At a 90s, time. Aisha, you look amazing. Um, but you talk about sort of encountering really the history of slavery in an early form and reading those books and in giving a speech about um, Addie and her history at school when you were quite young. Um, yeah, I was six. I, I, I can't believe my boys have only two years to, before they get their speech <laughs> game in order. Um, I practiced so hard for that speech. It was, <laughs> and my dad just drilled it into me. And I, yeah, that was, yeah. Um, <laughs> but talk a little bit about that period of your life and, what it felt like to sort of stand up and claim Addie's history is a thing that you wanted to talk about to your uh, peers. Yeah. I mean, it was, like I said in the piece, I feel like it was the first time or one of the first times where like I felt starkly different from my white peers. And my school was even mostly white, although it was pretty, still fairly diverse. But it was the first time I noticed that, you know, we were celebrating this month for a reason. And one of those reasons was slavery. And aside from, you know, being super nervous about speaking in front of the the class or the classes, uh, it was just learning about that s slavery at such a young age was, I don't know, it was, it was at once scary and sad i wouldn't say it was traumatizing because it was only like a one or two years later when i saw roots and that might have been traumatizing for me uh but i i feel, uh, i don't really know how to describe it i i think in the piece i mentioned that like i didn't feel so much it wasn't shame but it was to some extent like embarrassment that my ancestors were slaves in in a way that i couldn't fully comprehend uh, at at that age, it was like, why, why, just because we look like this, like, why? So I remember sort of questioning that. Um, yeah, embarrassment is probably the right word. You you also talk in the piece to a lot of uh, young women, not so young women today, who grew up with Addie, um, both black women and and other women. Talk about what they told you about what the doll meant to them, um, and and sort of how they began to process American history through her. Yeah, I spoke with a lot of women. A lot of them didn't make it into the piece, but the general, like, there were some women who, like me, they, they did feel that embarrassment, and especially if they were went to predominantly white schools and had white friends. It was like, this is a slave doll, and this is the only doll that I can choose from, and you guys have all these different dolls you can, you can get from different time periods. And, and then there were other women, like a, a friend of mine from college who 
actually was in the American Girl Review, which was a show that they had at the different retail locations. And it was like a play and they featured all of the American Girl characters. And it was it was like a full on production. They had costumes and shows and girls could go and watch them. And she said, you know, when I when I was like, I loved playing Addie, like I loved doing that. And the fact that these other characters like Felicity just wanted to ride a horse, but Addie had this very powerful story that was like empowering to me. That was it made me feel good because like my story felt more substantial. It felt more meaningful. So I was like, oh, I never thought of it that way. But I guess I can see it that way. Um, I do wonder she was a little bit older when she first like she read the stories as a as a slightly older i think she said around eight or nine she had read the stories and then she started playing the doll or playing Addie when she was in high school um so i wonder if her being older might have been when she encountered it might have made it easier for her to process those things because i was five or six and this was like the first thing that i was encountering about slavery but yeah it, it was just really and then the white women I spoke with who I I never really thought about it that way in terms of I always assumed if you were a white person and you had the Addy doll it was because you also had like all of them like you're a collector of the dolls not necessarily that you loved Addy because there you know there are a lot of the white women I knew were pretty well off and their parents could buy five $85 dolls for them to to play with but there were a few that I spoke with who they like either they specifically asked for the Addy doll or, you know, they might have had one or two other dolls, but they still really loved Addy and they loved Addy's story. So it was really fascinating to, to see how this was also served as a lesson for little white girls to about slavery. And it was often their first encounters with slavery, too. Aisha, there are these two data points, right? There's uh, Addy, you know, the doll that comes out, uh, the first American girl doll of color who's born in slavery. And then there's Melody that recently came out. 1963 Detroit in the civil, you know, thick of the civil rights struggle. What would represent progress for the third data point? Would it be liberating a, a young, you know, a doll of color from the necessity to enact, uh, you know, allegorically the story, you know, the historical struggle of Black Americans, or would it be continuing uh, the story of that struggle with a third doll? Um. That's a good question. I think it could be a combination of both. I think these are historical dolls, so we can't ignore history and history of black people is every decade is filled with some sort of struggle. Um, I do think that and even Melody now has gotten some like not a lot of critiques, but it's gotten some critiques because people are still hung up on the fact that they're like, why can't this be set in the present day? And I'm like, well, they're historical dolls. So that's like, that's <laughs> right. not, that kind of defeats the purpose. And the 60s wasn't that long ago. No. So <laughs> I, I don't understand that argument. I do think, though, that it would be nice if the, the struggle wasn't at the forefront. Like, mm -hmm. I think there can be moments of that. But then that might be difficult because if you said it in the 70s, like, you have to talk about well, you don't have to, but you would be do doing a disservice if you didn't point out like the welfare issues and those kind of things in the 80s, depending on where this child is living, the crack epidemic, the 90s. I don't know what the 90s would be. 
I what? lived. I lived through it, but I, <laughs> I like. I, can't, I mean, I mean, I guess the prison system would be like the nineties. Like well, one thing that they did say is that the alternate they considered when they made Addie was the Harlem Renaissance, right. and that sort of focusing on like the arts, uh, the arts, and like a generative, creative moment. You could imagine either a Harlem Renaissance doll or a. Uh, you know, Dawn of Hip Hop doll. I or... was thinking of that, <laughs> yeah. a Bronx kind of early 90s hip hop mm. doll. Right. I mean, it's totally doable. And when you have shows like The Get Down, which like that is very much a coming of age story and it's set in like the late 70s, like I, it's it's doable. It celebrates the arts and all of that, but it also is very specific about Puerto Rican and black culture. Like it's totally possible to do it. So yeah, it's, and the Harlem Renaissance would have been awesome. I, I hope they eventually do a doll for that yeah i mean it, it strikes me that uh, i was impressed by the open-mindedness of your reporting as you reviewed this work and by the amount of thought and care that this super white wisconsin company knew they needed to put in e- even at that moment which seems fairly far away but it also feels some ways like this broader metaphor for the racial conversation we've been having over the past few years of like you actually can't separate the issues we face today from the broader history and maybe you kind of need to process that history a bit before you bring yourself up to the present. Yeah. It's all about, you know, looking the sort of a dodge of Sankofa and West African culture of like looking back, paraphrasing, but like generally it's the idea of like looking back in order to go forward. And so, and, and I, and in even separating the, the, black culture out of it that i think that's what american girl in general tries to do that's the point is trying to connect the past to the present and making those parallels in some way all right well aisha harris is a slate culture writer she's the host of the slate podcast to represent aisha the essay is uh, terrific and it's thank you as always awesome to have you on the show the making of an american girl doll it's up on slate.com aisha thanks so much for coming and talking with us thanks it's always a pleasure being on the show All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? This week, Stephen, I want to endorse a a book that immediately popped to mind when the the Brangelina news broke. And everybody right and left, including you on this podcast, I believe, was comparing their coupledom and the glory of their, you know, of their married star power to um, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Right. And of course, another story from old Hollywood that came up a lot was the supposed stealing of Eddie Fisher from Debbie Reynolds by... Liz Taylor, which happened prior to the, to the Burton relationship. So I'm going to recommend a book that proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that there is no star couple that has ever equaled the, the wattage of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. It's a really, really great sort of scholarly book of Hollywood gossip called Furious Love, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, and the Marriage of the Century. It's by two writers, Sam Kashner and Nancy Schoenberger. And this is like a serious scholarly investigation of essentially the sort of growth of the mid-century gossip industry around Mm. the affair of of Taylor and Burton, which started on the set of Cleopatra. There were some famous photos of them taken on a a yacht. You know, they sort of went out on a boating expedition and got got caught making out together. And uh, and that was arguably kind of the the proto-TMZ, you know, the germ of TMZ being planted right there. Anyway, it's a fantastic book. It's heavily footnoted. And what's great is that, of course, all the footnotes are to things like, you know, tattletale and photo play and things like that. But it's, it's a truly dense and researched and quite long, beautifully written book. You'll learn a lot about both of their film careers and also about their utterly insane, I can't mm-hmm. even get into the crazy anecdotes yeah. about their marriage and, you know, sailing around the world on boats 
filled with monkeys and Pomeranians that weren't house trained. And they were just, they were a wild and woolly couple. And it's, if you if you read this book on a plane, Furious Love, you will want the plane trip to be longer so you can finish it. And additionally, they made an iconic movie together, each of whom delivering an iconic performance in it, right? Virginia Woolf. Yeah, Virginia yeah. Woolf. which is essentially the only good or successful movie they ever made together. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there but a was, great, but a genuinely great oh, movie. Oh yeah, a great movie, yeah. sure. And also, additionally, he was a, he was a remarkable wit and a beautiful writer. And so anytime he himself personally attested to the experience of his own life or uh, of being with her, he did it um, as well as anybody could. I mean, you, in other words, you didn't sense there was some huge discrepancy between the intensity of the world's interest in what was going on inside their skulls and what was actually going on inside oh, their yeah. skulls. And this book excerpts <laughs> a lot of his diaries and letters, which, yeah, his diaries and letters are amazing. I mean, Richard Burton could have been a writer instead yes. of an actor, and he would have been a great writer. Exactly. Exquisite. Um, Julia, what do you got? Uh, my endorsement, and you can draw whatever conclusions you like from the fact that this is my endorsement this week, is a corkscrew. I feel like the hype around the rabbit corkscrew, which is the like gigantic pneumatic ergonomic like whiz bang way to open a bottle of wine has subsided a little bit since it's early aughts yuppie heyday. Um, And there are some people who like to ostentatiously instead of using the huge mechanical mechanism of the rabbit, which if you live in an apartment with drawers of limited depth, inevitably like bangs and hiccups on the fucking drawer when you like open it and try to shut it uh, have gone in a culturally perhaps revealing way towards like just getting the kind of plain old like the sommelier at the chic restaurant you know just the little rectangle of plastic with the knob that requires all the the twisting the, you know the twisting and then the little um, prong that allows you to lift the cork out the sort of ostentatious plainness of the baseline corkscrew and that's fine. That's all well and good. But there is like a wonderfully engineered, excellent corkscrew that is definitely the best corkscrew. And it's just not gotten enough corkscrew cred as the best way to open a <laughs> bottle of wine. And that is the screw pull, uh, S-C-R-E-W-P-U-L-L um, corkscrew. Uh, and it uses a similar dynamic as the the other kind of corkscrew I haven't mentioned yet, the one with the little flanges that the rise, arms, right? you know, like the kind of dancing man corkscrew. Um, it does not have the arms, but it has that same mechanism of like a, a sheath that you put over the bottle and then a screw that you turn, but that screw just pulls the cork all the way out without the dancing man flange mechanism. I'm having to use a lot of precise, small <laughs> words for like levers and movements. It's unclear whether I have satisfactorily described the mechanism I am hoping to describe, but... It is the best. It's easy. It's effortless. It works every time. Um, and I, I just don't think that Scruple has gotten enough love as clearly the best corkscrew. So I recommend it. We'll put a link to it on the show page. Um, may you all open many bottles of wine with great ease and happiness. <laughs> <laughs> that's, an, that's an awesome endorsement. Do you have one? Uh, <laughs> what do you use to open wine, Steve? Sommelier. All right. Uh, of course. There we go. Um, how late am I to the Angel Olsen party? I don't even know about that yeah, party. Earlier than me. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, also, I'm wondering whether I've already endorsed the Angel Olsen. I don't think I have. Indie singer-songwriter. Um, uh, she's only getting bigger with each record. She's terrific. She's got a little shared DNA with Nico Case and maybe Liz Fair. And uh, Fantastic. Uh, the album I really love and I'm listening to right now is um, called Burn Your Fire for No Witness. Angel Olsen, couldn't recommend her more highly. But now, 
I have to descend fully into the depths of my own worst self-caricature and say that I'm going to endorse the theory of moral sentiments by Adam Smith. <laughs> and the reason I'm going to do it is because, of course, he's the founding father of capitalism and theory, the theory of capitalism. You could argue he's the founding father of not only market economics, but economics itself as a discipline or social science, the father of social science. But the funny thing about Adam Smith is that he started out as a, lecture, a lecturer at, uh, in, at Glasgow University, first in, I believe, in logic, but then moved on to um, essentially ethics and morality. And he wrote, a, he wrote really a, like an absolute masterpiece in theory of moral sentiments. And the interesting thing about Smith, in addition to his being the founding father of of capitalism is reconciling this earlier work about our moral obligation to ourselves, to one another, and to uh, the polity with this later iteration of the power of markets when they're left essentially to their own devices. The invisible hand, right, is obviously his most famous formulation of it. Um, and it turns out he's this, he's of a piece with the Scottish Enlightenment. His friends were Burke and Hume, David Hume, uh, and the other somewhat lesser known figures of the Scottish Enlightenment. It has that same verve, that same empirical, ruddy kind of engagement with the world as you actually find it. And what's fascinating about him is that he is the person who went on to, to in completely non-normative language, describe what a, a market economy is. But he first was trying to derive ethical and moral principles from the world as you find it, as opposed to coming up with a universal abstraction, which has absolutely no point of leverage in the world as we actually live in it, and trying to insert it somewhere, which moralists have always done. And so it's from this empirical point of view that he's trying to figure out how do you get in a potentially debased commercial society a moral existence? Like how do you continue on into a essentially capitalistic and transactional world? How do you have anything like a world of reciprocal moral obligations? And it's just one of the most extraordinary books ever written, right? And then when you try to reconcile it, as he was trying to reconcile it with this empirical observation about about um, early capitalism, it, it's, it, it redoubles. It's, it's like when Brad and Angelina get married. It becomes, <laughs> it becomes this third multidimensional, um, you know, kind of thing. Anyway, I've become obsessed <laughs> so with Adam Smith. Adam but. Smith's moral and economic theories are to each other as Brad is to Angie. Is what I you're think saying. that that's, that's And they've given rise to the Pax and Maddox and Zaharia and Shiloh of modern life. Don't forget Vivian and Knox. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what the last part of what you said means or refers so to. who's Jennifer Aniston in this metaphor? Is that Hume? Well, she's what was left behind, so she must be like feudalism no, 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 or something. No, no, no. Oh, hello. Exactly. Well done, Dana. It's, <laughs> it's Mandeville and his theory of the bees, which was a proto version of the invisible hand that had no sense that something had been lost. But in fact, what Smith is doing is saying, no, that if you look at society as this amoral, self-interested, you know, just atomistic, amoral, self-interested actors, but society flourishes when they all pursue their own greed in fact, you create something profoundly alienating to the human experience. And so that was Jennifer Aniston. Got it. But it evolves. <laughs> <laughs> it evolves into the new multidimensional humane thing when you bring together sentiment and market prosperity or Brad and 
Angie. Meaning that their split casts us into some new terrifying kind of philosophical territory that we've never been in before. Yes, postmodern darkness. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) All right. Well, that got real. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you, Stephen. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers remains, as always, the chief, hail to the chief, content officer of Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of that Panoply Network, so if you'd like to find more similar shows, check out our entire roster at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julie Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week. It's